Guys, welcome to the podcast. Before we get started, as ever, remember that all the information you're about to hear is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure or prevent any illnesses or diseases. Please make sure to consult your healthcare practitioner before implementing any of the things we may discuss in this podcast. Speaking of education, if you're an exercise professional, coach or anyone working within the realms of health and fitness, when you're done listening here, make sure to head on over and check out our education portal at www themusclementors.co.uk if you like us and truly care about the well-being of your clients about getting access to the best and most up-to-date information in the areas of exercise mechanics hypertrophy sleep improving your online coaching services and much much more then be sure to join up you'll gain access to endless hours of content focused around everything you need to become a truly elite coach and get your clients in the best physical shape possible this is all in the form of video lectures weekly live education sessions and study groups you also get early access to our podcast and access to any exclusive Q&A segments we do with our guests. The content never stops on the portal. It's not a one-off course. It's an ever-evolving learning platform designed to give you the best information possible in this area. Head on over to our website and become part of our epic community, full to the brim of other professionals who, like yourself, are focused on providing the best health and physique-related results for their clients. Join us and them and gain the resources, support and accountability you need to become the elite of the health and fitness industry. For now, though, grab yourself a pen and paper and enjoy the show. How are we doing, everyone? Welcome back to the Muscle Mentors podcast. Um, joined by Paul and a monster, apparently, and Mr. Ross Byrne. And unfortunately, Jimbo was meant to be here, but he's he's currently unwell. Um, hey, hey, shitting himself. What a piece. <laughs> 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 that's what this podcast is about we're basically just going to be speculating on james's illness <laughs> is, it real? is it real is james really sick oh <laughs> uh, no is james secretly a member of the taliban is that why he's so long? <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty convenient you'd be sick on the day of taliban are active james <laughs> i mean i'm just saying i haven't seen him in person since so yeah. you could say that's coincidence but yeah. you know. you're immediately gonna get banned <laughs> <laughs> taliban Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> that tickled me way more than it should have. Yeah. Yeah. Just snap me up for that one. Everyone's decided, again, if this is your first experience with our podcast, <laughs> I, apologize. I can only apologise. Yeah. Um, the, um, no, the actual topic of today's podcast is defining failure um, in training. I should, I should say, in training. Um, yeah, not just in life. <laughs> <laughs> what is what counts as a failed existence? Um, <laughs> uh, Again, we come back to Jimbo. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> he's never going to listen back to this. So he doesn't know. <laughs> he will now. Um, <laughs> but uh, uh, so yeah, defining failure in the context of exercise, um, and um, I mean, this should be quite a cool discussion because you, you'd say. I mean, it's a fairly, I think the way it's usually discussed is fairly one-dimensional. So hopefully we'll, we'll aim to broaden everyone's, well, the ways you can interpret that in training and, and use that to your advantage as a coach and how you prescribe exercise. Um, um, One of those ones that like often like terms like balance or health mm. feels initially like it should be really obvious. Mm. And then actually when you start delving into it, you go, shit, this is hard to pin down precisely what this might mean. Yeah. I, think, I think you stand it really up and up when you take someone to actual failure like when you really somebody to the point where they're not going to be able to move anymore you're like wow that's very far from where I thought I could stop you know yeah mm. 
And I, it, I like to really crank it up a notch. And even if they fail on Earth, I put them in a rocket, immediately take them. To <laughs> and with the lower gravity, we can actually keep going. So <laughs> just because you failed here doesn't mean you failed everywhere in the universe. And I think that's important to keep in mind. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that that's basically because that, that, like, if we try and figure out the ways they define failure, because you come and it was actually a paper that we looked at on our education board the other day that kind of talks a little bit about this. Um, of how there's no real kind of operational definition of failure, even in literature and in research of, you know, they'll, all these researchers usually define it in different ways, which makes it equally confusing when you're trying to look at what training to failure means. And you're looking at 10 studies and they've all actually technically different things. Yeah. Um, but like the, some of the terms you might hear coming up are like momentary muscular failure or concentric failure or, volitional fatigue yeah, volitional fatigue which doesn't technically sound like failure but but again like that you know these are like end points of sets that people would train be training to and you're like well what does that mean what does that look like um i like volitional fatigue uh, volitional failure i can't remember the exact term it was in that carpinelli one that he was oh, it was volitional fatigue, the volitional fatigue yeah. which is which is basically when it gets um I mean, the, the actual definition was when I believe they, in the paper, uses... Well, volitional implies voluntary, right? Yeah. It's this idea of, like, it's within your decision, whatever decision means, to stop, or there's been enough fatigue that it's caused you to decide to terminate the set. Yeah. So, but interesting, like, I've actually got the paper here. So, the, the paper, if people want to read it, it's called... Critical Commentary on the Stimulus for Muscle Hypertrophy in Experienced Trainees by Ralph Carpinelli. Um, and, uh, yeah, so he says, if um, he basically references a number of studies and then says, you know, but none of the, like, the people that ran these studies didn't actually define um, what volitional fatigue was. Um, yeah, it implies, so it implies a conscious, deliberate, voluntary decision to terminate a set. But a big problem with that, and I can just quote from the study here, is he says, however, individuals possess relatively different tolerances of psychological, physiological discomfort and consequently variable inter-individual inter perceptions of volitional fatigue. Although these terms have different definitions, they are used interchangeably in the resistance training literature. Um, and that's, yeah, so people will use that. So he says Fleck and Kramer claimed that an exhaustion set was synonymous with volitional fatigue, sets to failure, sets to concentric failure and repetition maximum, which just sounds straight up wrong. Uh, yeah, even if you think about it from this perspective, if you've ever tried to work out after you've just been dumped or you found out your partner was cheating on you or someone just passed away, how well does that session normally go? On the other side, many of us enjoy a sweet, sweet can of Monster. And my session is almost universally better after <laughs> the ingestion of one to two cans of the white glory. And so that sounded super like white supremacist, didn't it? The white. <laughs> <laughs> there are other monsters available. It's just that the white is superior in this instance. Don't social Darwin me. Um, and so even within ourselves, that point, which we all kind of know once you've been training for a period of time, some days you've got a bit more to give psychologically than others and that's influenced by a whole bunch of different stuff so if we can't agree on what volitional fatigue constitutes for an individual because it varies within an individual how in the hell is that a standardized measure across individuals the short answer is it's, it's not and it never will be 
even with the definition of volitional and you put that in front of fatigue, it doesn't really, it's like decision fatigue. I've decided I want to stop. You know, that kind of way. Like it's like, I, I could, like I could decide one day that I'm voluntarily stopping after one rep, you know, and that's, I know it's an extreme, it's, I know it's an extreme outlook on it, but it's essentially looking at it that way and saying like, when you define volitional, it's voluntary. You know, I've decided I'm, I'm done based on the fatigue that I'm experiencing, you know, and I think from what we know and how we train and how we understand training, I think you can look at that a little bit deeper and go, okay, it's probably a little bit more than that. Well, one of the things with that even is the fact that, you know, how much choice or how much ability you have to exert your will when your body doesn't necessarily want to do something clearly varies. Like some days it's easy to make yourself do something. It doesn't feel like a chore. Other days it feels much more like a chore and it's more draining to drag yourself through that thing. Whatever we mean by willpower, and it is hard to define that thing, does vary day to day in terms of how much you can exert it, how much you will win versus I'm um, done now. That varies day to day. Of course, it varies day to day. I mean, it's also experience as well, right? So that was that's the problem with that volitional fatigue definition. I think that that would be in, in the research scenario that would be hard to implement when you haven't controlled for participants previous experiences and training and what you know they can go to in their beliefs because because it's going to come down there's a point in this paper i've forgotten where it was a good line but you said it's basically participants are going to stop when they believe whether or not that's the case that if they did another rep they wouldn't be able to do it but you'll get you know and that's so common when people are, i think i'm done and it's like well we know quite often that if, if the circumstances are right, people can go for a lot longer than they think. And these, these people feel like, oh, just stop when you've had enough. Yeah. You get, you get one person who goes for like six reps and like, I think I'm done. And then one person like, I've been here before and I know I can get six more. Um, so I tried to whack down at a kind of thing, right? Of like, well, how would I define failure in these, these terms or get close to, to kind of whacking with it? And for me, it, it's going to be this thing of, Okay, well, it's a failure to produce a necessary amount of force to overcome the needed torque or the torque created by the challenge of the exercise in question. But that's not a constant thing. The resistance no. isn't constant. And what that challenge means isn't constant. And failure itself can then occur due to like coordination issues, intention issues, aggression issues, focus issues, desire issues, central fatigue, peripheral fatigue, mm. like if you guys have ever listening have ever come across what's called a strength deficit here's a cool thing to conceptualize so when we test max force output in isometric conditions if you imagine someone in a leg extension they're going to be strapped in and you can go and google um, maximum involuntary isometric contraction put that in google and look at some of the images that come up and you'll find these dudes that are like strapped in like rally car seats almost uh, and they've got their leg and they're going to shove against with a single leg against the resistance pad in like a leg extension, but it won't go anywhere. So they can shove as hard as they possibly can. It'll measure how much force they can produce in that position. And then they can change the isometric angle and go, okay, how much force here? How much here? How much here? And you can see the differences in force output generated across those things. Cool. So, but there's two ways you can do this. The one is called voluntary isometric, right? Where you just ask the person, okay, we've strapped you in, shove as hard as you fucking can. And then they measure how much force they produce. And then you do a different version where you don't say anything to them, but you electrocute their leg. <laughs> so you contract their muscle tissue for them by providing the electrical stimulus that recruits the tissue. And then you measure the difference between involuntary when you electrocute them and voluntary when you just ask them to electrically stimulate themselves effectively. 
and you measure the deficit, the difference between them. And there is always a difference between them. You can produce more for, uh, force when you are electrically stimulated than you can voluntarily make yourself produce. We call this the strength deficit. And it is bigger in beginners than it is in advanced trainees. So as you get more advanced, you close this gap. There might be a 30% gap between the amount you can actually produce, even when you're trying your hardest and what that tissue is genuinely capable of doing once it learns to coordinate everything necessary to produce that thing. But even in advanced people, there are differences um, within individuals and within the exercises themselves. The study, I forget the name of the study, but looking at this particular question, found like a 15% difference in quad strength deficit in advanced trainees, but only like a 1.3% difference in dorsiflexors and about 5% difference in, in the elbow flexors, right? Mm -hmm. So there's these differences within it. So even if I said complete failure and fatigue and inability, the max force production in that thing, that still wasn't the tissue's maximum capacity. So we can get really yeah. blurry. Which is going to be, I mean, just, I don't know, it's so in relation to failure, well, it probably would be, but like that that 15% strength deficit in, in quads and stuff, you know, in the lower body, is probably something you'd never change because your nervous system's always going to probably need to be able to like let you stand. <laughs> and if you're like, we're going to use everything, it's, you know, it would be like, that's going to be quite a hard task. So I'll leave something in the tank. I won't let yeah, short of there being a bear on you or yeah, where, yeah. Your, where your body goes, fuck it, give him everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's really going to happen. Yeah. But we go, um, if you guys have ever come across, if you haven't come across central fatigue versus peripheral fatigue, Chris Beardsley has some really cool stuff on it. But this yeah. is one of the ways you measure it, right? Let's say we get you to death failure, right? And Or what feels like death failure. You can't, let's say we're doing leg extension because we're talking about leg extension. Trying to extend your leg and you're like, I can't do any more, right? And you try and kind of do some, and the set appears done to the external observer. If I then electrically stimulate your leg and suddenly you could keep going, cool. Then what we have experienced is central fatigue. Your tissue has clearly had more in it, but it was limited by your nervous system's ability to recruit and perform. If I try and electrically stimulate you once you've gotten to that point and nothing else changes, then clearly what we've experienced is peripheral. It's the tissue itself can't produce any cross bridges anymore. It's for all intents and purposes, done with that amount of force production at that moment in time. And it's really hard to differentiate. There's no good way of us knowing short of doing something like that. And we can't do that at the gym. People don't really like it if you go around just trying to cattle prod their quad, right? And so it, it's difficult for us to know exactly what the limiter was in any set. And I don't know about you boys, I don't know a way around that. Mm. No. That's that, but whether we need to at this point is yeah, quite. But it, but it is fascinating, right? And it, it just kind of brings into question like how difficult it is to define this thing. Um, that that's uh, I mean, I think the that was quite a cool. So, can you give your definition of failure again one more time? Or so, failure to produce enough force, I call it muscular force, to create the needed torque to overcome the torque challenge created by the resistance. Yeah. But as, as we said, like the, that resistance isn't static. If I launch the resistance, the resistance actually decreases at one point. Just because I can't produce enough force from, let's say, my quad again, to hold my leg out in the extended position on that bit of kit with that load on it, with the torque that that load creates, because it isn't the weight on the stack that I'm fighting. It's the torque that I'm fighting of the machine. And that torque is two things. It is that load. And then it's whatever leverage it has over an axis that is presenting a challenge to me. And so 
what I'm having to do is come up with a talk. Well, thankfully, well, maybe not thankfully, but for <laughs> you can't really change your internal moment arms, right? I can't go and change the leverage that my muscle tissue has. Oh, you know, I can't change my tibial tuberosity attachment for my quad there, short of surgery. So the only thing we can adjust on our side of the equation is force output. Mm. And so we're looking at force output from the quad, generating torque around the knee to fight the torque that's being provided by the resistance. And at some point, cool, I can't produce enough. But that doesn't mean that all of the motor units and all of the muscle fibers are dead and done. doesn't yeah. even mean I'm done with that load for the rest of the range. Yeah, that's, that, that's the thing, right? So and that, that's why we quite often hear it called termed momentary muscular failure, because if it was muscular failure, you know, if they didn't put the momentary, you'd be like, the muscle's just dead. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but it shouldn't yeah. really, should yeah. really be called momentary muscular failure against this particular resistance. Well, that's what I mean. So, like, I've, I've just pulled up that's exactly your all up tongue. I've just pulled up de like definitions of failure, and you've got like lack of success, which which potentially is quite apt in the sense of in that scenario, you, your 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 muscle can no longer succeed at the task that's being asked to it. Like, that's pretty good. Um, whereas if you're like the actional state of not functioning, like that, some people would interpret it as that like i've gone to the point where there's nothing left in the tissue i know you've gone to the point where the muscle can't produce enough force to overcome the load that's being applied to it like yeah, that's, it's, that's, it's a huge momentary um, muscular failure really isn't it yeah like, but then but that's the point right like we really chronic muscular failure is death so yeah. also, like, i've just put so in the paper further on so he, he says like um he goes on to say you know muscular failure could be defined as the trainee's inability to so this was some other guys so an article by danko and colleagues uh, Steele and colleagues suggested that muscular failure could be defined as the trainee's ability to complete the final repetition despite uh, inability to complete the final repetition despite a maximal effort. Um, and then he says at the end, perhaps researchers should designate the set endpoint, e.g. muscular failure, as the inability to maintain the assigned rep duration for concentric and eccentric muscle actions throughout the set while maintaining proper exercise form. That that I mean that that's getting closer potentially, but then at the same time, um, I always have problems with definitions that state proper form, yeah, proper exercise form. Like, what do you mean? Like, <laughs> until we get into seeing this thing in action, I, I, I don't know what that means. And that's, it, it's then hard to bring that across yeah. different bits of kit because okay, well, yeah. we've got that happening on the leg extension. Well, which leg? Different extension? people, right? Yeah, like that that leg extension here doesn't provide the same challenge to my quad as this other leg extension here because i know it says 20 kilos on the stack but that is not what you're lifting you're fighting a torque which is whatever the stack is meeting finally once it's gone through the engineering of the machine meeting your leg and unless the engineering of the machine is exactly the same which means you're on the same machine that isn't the challenge it's the wrong way of looking at it and it's just never referenced in research ever I don't think I've ever seen one paper where they spoke about the particulars of the machine, of the which is to say the particulars of the resistance. And oh, that's this guy's got close, I think, Carpinelli. I think he's, he's aware of those differences. Yeah. I've, I've only read of his stuff as critical reviews rather than him conducting the research. Oh, the, well, that one where he did the, the pleometric and the meometric kind of stuff. There we go. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that, that is the thing. I mean, that like the, I, I think um, one of the things I wrote down is like, you could say a, just clearly defined and appropriate 
set end points is a better term than failure because we're rarely ever actually going into failure. Like failure in the sense of I think how a lot of people interpret it of going to the point where the muscle can no longer function. It's like you'd have to be go through concentric failure, then through eccentric failure, then to the point where like almost we got to with Joe in the camp where yeah. he, like, he was doing this guy was doing a leg extension and we went through this such a you know pull just like reduced the load so as he his muscle lost the ability to deal with the load that was presented to it we reduced the load pulled manually off off offload the the input arm all these sorts of things and it got to the point where even the weight of his tibia was like yeah, he couldn't, he couldn't extend yeah. his own limb which yeah. was which was what we started out as the start point because this lad joe he's a he's a big boy he's he's yeah. familiar with training uh, and he's got a really great work ethic and can push yeah. after some hard places. And so we said to the group at the start, well, you know, what's the failure point we're after here? It's like, I don't want him to be able to lift the weight of his own leg. All right, sweet. Let's go there then. Yeah. And just go and pursue that as a, as a particular outcome. But look, the weight of his limb is a load too. Like, if, again, if I stuck Joe up in a rocket and I took him to space, he'd suddenly be able to move that leg. Hmm. And it's like if people just hold, if you know, you just hold your arm out to the side, like you're doing a dumbbell lateral, even just without any load, hold it there for as long as you can. After a while, your shoulder would be like, well, damn. Yeah, yeah. It's going to be Like, you're dealing with a master. Um, oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> um, you become a southerner. That's where, like, I'd, I'd say. All right, take shoulder. <laughs> Well, damn. <laughs> yeah. so I think it would be it, it's an interesting thing it would be interesting to see if, if they ever like, and that's where I like that definition of the inability to maintain the assigned rep duration for concentric and eccentric muscle action throughout the set while maintaining proper exercise form so that's like we're getting closer to it's not as Ross said it rolls off the tongue uh, absolutely. <laughs> but, but, it, but, but it's getting close to that thing of it's just a lack of success at the task as opposed to failure of the muscle in, in its entirety, which is really never going to happen. Look, this, this can sound like we're being pedantic, but if we're going to have papers and meta-analyses and systematic reviews that draw conclusions and tell us things like proximity to failure is sure, uh, proves meh, or even if we're going to look at Chris Beardsley and talk about effective reps within five reps of failure, but we've made assumptions on what failure means, but there's a chance we're building you know, a house of cards. We're building on sand. So like, look, the foundations here might not be as solid as we think that they could be. Now that, by the way, might well not turn out to be the case. And this is all doesn't, doesn't end up mattering. But if you're going to do science well, you have to control for all the, in an ideal world, all of the variables but one. And then you test varying that variable and seeing the effect of, that it produces on an outcome. Now, I accept we're never going to get to the point where we really reduce it to only one variable with human beings and with training. I, I understand that. But that doesn't that's not a good enough excuse for us not to aspire to it and attempt to get closer. And perhaps it does turn out that none of these things really matter and that just getting close to task failure, whatever the reason, causes growth and it doesn't matter all that much. That's a perfectly possible outcome. It's just that you can't conclude it in the way we're often seeing people concluding it until you've accounted for these things and controlled for them properly. Yeah, it's um, it's one of the things that, uh, I mean, like he says it here, that um, in order to establish a standardization of the hypertrophic stimuli, so yeah. the stimulus required for hypertrophy, perhaps set endpoints such as volitional fatigue or muscular failure should be clearly defined and universally accepted. And that is the case in, in research. Like if they really are going to like start producing studies that are comparable between one another, 
So it's like, you know, a group over here does a study looking at one thing and a group over here and a group over here and a group over here. If they're all actually measuring different outcomes and endpoints, you can't compare any of the results. But quite often we do when you go into meta-analysis meta-analyses and they're like oh well they, these four studies looked at failure but they actually looked at four different interpretations of failure so that doesn't really make a good comparison i don't know if you've seen the new kind of meta-analyses doing the round that schoenfeld came out with the resistance training recommendations to maximize muscle hypertrophy in athletic populations the position stand of the iusca have you seen it i've not read it but i've seen it i haven't, I haven't, I haven't read it either. i've seen it doing the rounds i haven't read it in full but like you know, when, they, when you go through to kind of summarise the recommendations, there's a lot of mentions of, you know, failure and volume and, mm. you know, these things that we can't fully define across, you know, what is what is likely 20, 30 studies in total. Do you know, that kind of way we have to look at who is running them, you know, what are they doing, how are they running them, you know, and, like, I've seen a lot of people go, you know, now we have these recommendations, everyone should take them as they're given, and, like, until somebody can prod through, like, pull a, pull a full Carpinelli and go through the whole thing and be like, well, you know, that kind of way, this is what I'm defining things as, you know, it's like, I, I can't look at that objectively and say that's the definitive answer to what, yeah. And, it, and it would need to be, which I, I don't actually think would be unrealistic if they got, you know, pulled all the major researchers in the area of hypertrophy and said, guys, we're in a room, we're not going to leave until we all agree on a definition of hypertrophy and a definition of failure or, you know, and all yeah. these things that we can, you know, we might tweak in the future, but we'll all go away and study the same thing and, and we'll get as, as good a definition as we can and then we'll, we'll, we'll start to see some more, like, generalizable results I mean, it, in their defense it does it is it's difficult like, oh, yeah. well, yeah, you know, it's, you, yeah. we're having to work with an operational definition of some kind right. like and, and describe something and look, the fact that it isn't perfect doesn't mean we need to completely do away with it, it doesn't mean we should completely ignore <laughs> these ideas it just means we shouldn't you know com- have complete trust and faith in them yet <laughs> That it, means, yeah, it means if we're doing research ourselves, we need to have more, you know, more due diligence in terms of reading the studies to be like, okay, what did these what did this study term failure as? And then and what are they trained to? Okay, is that comparable to this one over here that you know showed something else? And then we, we can start looking at stuff there. Which admittedly, I, I think a lot of people who've like looked at um meta-analyses and stuff like that have, have done conducted some of these meta-analyses to which they haven't done i mean you, you read this paper by company it's like 33 pages of like serious like nitpicking but it's it's, it's worthy nitpicking when you get down stuff like this because it's like okay well how useful is this information um but the um but yeah the, i think back to that thing of like clearly defined and appropriate set endpoints like that that in terms of how we use this information in our coaching practice like if we accept that okay you know failure is however if we just call it a lack of success at the task like we, you know we need to be clear in what that looked like with ourselves with our clients and yeah it might not mean oh i've seen jp training to failure and his version of failure is he cannot lift the thing but we've got 40 year old 50 year old client new to training and we think there's there's utility in them going to failure but failure for them might be just doing one specific they lose the ability to do a specific thing that's that's needed during an exercise and it could be maintaining a certain joint position and there's a point in the set where things fatigue a little too much and you know maybe it's like on a i'm thinking a um like you could put them on a leg extension it might be like okay they lose the ability to get through the first 50 you know the 50 percent of the range like that's as far as they get um you're like okay well that's enough for them that's what we're going to call failure. That's their set endpoint. Clearly defined. We know what we're working to. 
you get them on a leg curl or something. It's like, oh, there's this point when they get super fatigued and they start losing positions around the hip and their spine. You're like, okay, well, that for them is a clearly defined set end point. And that's as far as they need to go. doesn't need to be until they can't move the weight. Yeah, but the thing that you'll notice within... Uh, no, go for it there, Ross. I know, I wasn't going to say anything. Uh, so the, the thing even within that is that that itself has to be standardized to each of those individuals. Yeah. Like as, as, as Luke Cohen was alluding to that, you know, let's say I'm going to call her Sally for some reason. Uh, she has, uh, I don't know, 80 degrees of range as she goes through this particular exercise. But another person has 70 degrees. Another person has 90 degrees kind of available to them before we see other joints starting to move and an inability for them to hold still what we want to hold still and only move what we want to move. It's, you know, we have arguments sometimes about what full range of motion means and rightfully so. And, Really, I think that the issue is we try and standardize range of motion across people, but people are not standardized. Yeah. You can't therefore say that these people that very really vary from five foot to seven foot four, or they're going to have the same ranges, are they? You know, the bar touches the chest. It's like what, regardless of if you're Gemma Jameson or fucking Peter Crouch, you think that bar needs to go as far in either of those instances. So no, Gemma Jameson can bounce that thing within like a three inch drop from the top of her arms. Or you're Jeremy Beadle. It's not going to be the same thing in terms of the distance that that guy travels versus, you know, you've got this albatross wingspan that the thing is going through. So we have to first off, define what the range of motion is for this individual before we can even say what a 50% reduction is going to be for them. And then just because we found it on one leg extension doesn't mean we found it on all leg extensions. You know, for that person there, they've lost the ability to get through that last 50% of the range. That could well be because their force output is decreasing as they get to the leg straight position because we lose uh, some of our force output capacity in that thing. And this particular machine only drops off by five kilos let's say from its bottom position to its top position or it increases or it increases right or it stays the same yeah. that's not going to be that's not going to lead to the same point of failure task failure and reduction in range of motion as a machine that you know gives her and has a drop off of 40 percent as it goes through that top to bottom we're going to see different outcomes in the task so the task specificity of mm. failure is, is set by the resistance as much as the individual and again there's no accounting for how clear these resistances actually are they just say oh we did a leg press we did a leg curl. we did a leg extension we did a whatever mm. and they're treated as though they are as static as a dumbbell and they're not mm. It is that's that's another thing that it, it, when it comes to interpreting research in the yeah, realms of hypertrophy, beyond just looking at failure, until they start, we've said this before, until they start releasing um, training footage along with studies result, you know, so it's like here's the paper and here's a like a you know a video collection of all the participants perform the exercise, and you're like ah, like here's a here's twenty different people who are all built differently. Now I can see why these squat you know, the results from their squats look different and the results from, you know, they're doing a leg extension and they're on the particular piece that you might be familiar with the mechanics of, like, I can see why, you know, potentially such and such happened, you know, or there's, you know, one of the things you'll see in a lot of these studies is they don't specify rep speed, like rep tempo. <laughs> these things, they're just like, yeah, they just did leg extension for six sets of, you know, 10 reps. And you're like, any, and like, you know, Ralph Carplay brings up a few times, they're just like, but, they, but the researchers didn't specify tempo, didn't specify like set uh, rest periods, all these sorts of things. You're like, well, that makes it pretty hot. 
Like, but even if the even if we do specify rep tempo, that <laughs> still has to be taken into account with the machinery and the engineering in question. Like rep tempo with something that goes through a, a four to one pulley is yeah. really different than something that is a dumbbell. It's also different if we're talking about rotating machines. Well, mm. the lever arm and where those plates or whatever happens to be put on the uh, particular machine, like the longer that arm is, if you imagine this machine is rotating around a circle, the longer the radius, the bigger that thing is, the bigger the circle it creates, and therefore the bigger distance it travels in a given period of time. And so if I launch something really rapidly, meaning it covers a big distance in a short period of time, that ends up giving me a really different force than something that travels a really small distance in the same period of time. And what we're trying to standardize, really what we're saying when we talk about rep speed, or one of the things we should be standardizing when we're talking about rep speed, is the forces applied to the individual doing the exercise at each point in their range. Because if we're going to talk about time under tension, but the tension itself isn't constant because the forces are not constant, then we're not even beginning to have the conversation appropriately. And so we have to clarify. That. And these aren't, they're not difficult things to do. They're no more difficult than doing a muscle biopsy. What we're asking for is some video, some pictures of some stuff. Stick a crane scale on the bottom of the leg extension, pull it a little bit and go, cool, I've got 40 kilos here. And then I get to the top, I've got 30. I'll take that. Like, I don't even need huge analysis. I just want something. This is not difficult. It sounds difficult, but I promise you it isn't. Not if you're at the level of doing PhD research and no. it's a fucking fail, but this is, it's, it's requiring us to waffle about this on a podcast and it isn't <laughs> given. Uh, it is a, uh, that, that's a, uh, the, the, the lack of controlled variables and confounding variables and things that are just left to the imagination in studies is quite interesting and then like often don't require much from the researchers but like, oh, actually we can resolve that by just doing this quick thing so we're putting, so we're putting 20 participants on this on the same leg extension let's just take two minutes to just see what that does okay, okay. <laughs> write that down even, even just the video just give us the video yeah. <laughs> now that, that's enough for us to like okay cool i can see kind of what's going on here to some degree and that's not difficult. They all have phones. <laughs> you know what I mean? <laughs> it's like just put your phone down, record the people training, put them in a link in the study. Who was participant A, B, C, what's that? Yeah. I that get was. it in the 90s where there wouldn't have been some of this stuff. Yeah, no, I get that. It's, it's 2021 now. And uh, you could easily have, and bl blur the faces out if people need to be anonymous for those things. That's all fine and dandy. If you want to blind the assessors, then they can't have watched the uh, exercises or watched the video when they're doing the analysis, whether that's ultrasound or um, just circumferences or whatever they're using to determine the change in growth of that, the metric they're measuring. Like, like yeah, they're not, this isn't that difficult to add in. Yeah. Tool. Um, I said, yeah, I mean, we're going to get hit back from like research now, but like, actually, it really is. Like, okay, great. Um, no, it's not. <laughs> that's literally our answer every time it, it, i always have this conversation like oh well this research said i don't care what it says i can't see it you know, kind of way and like that's my problem with these the, a lot of people like you know, i would know and I, I do fully respect you know kind of coming out with like, like someone has sent me this already like oh, what do you think of this i'm like well until i can really go through it you know and understand that i can't really give an up on it because like i think one of the recommendations they put kind of point blankly is like you know how much reps you should do how much sets you should do it's everything is like this is what it should be um, now, fairness to the, the kind of head research, Schoenfeld, even when he did post, he did say, you know, we can't take this as a given. He did say that. But, you know, like, 
I don't know how people can read that, take it as a given. And the person who reads it says, don't take it as a given. And yet everyone's taking it as a given. <laughs> you know, it's just like, we need to look at these things objectively. And there's more to be done for us to start taking these things. Because if all these things were legitimate and all these things were, you know, straight up, this is how it works, then everyone would have to do the same thing. You know, one of the hard parts as well is that, look, and I've, I've been to, I've said this before on, on here, I think, but I've been to Schoenfeld seminars and I've asked him questions and, and he seems like a perfectly nice dude. And he's clearly spent a large amount of his life doing a lot of work related to this field and this field therefore owes him a lot of stuff. But there is this horrifying possibility that much of what he's built upon isn't as good as he thinks it should have been. And, you know, I remember being in the room and someone asking him, you know, when you're doing pressing stuff, do you consider sternum angle or like him just looking confused and being like, I, I don't know why that would matter. But that's a basic engineering issue in terms of something's ability to produce torque and fight an external torque. Like if you can't account for that and you, do, and, in, and I'm quoting verbatim, I don't see why that would matter. That's a big red flag. It doesn't by itself mean that he's wrong about things because it could turn out, it could turn out that it doesn't matter too much about the sternum angle. Could, I, I can't say that it won't. I'd be hugely surprised. Uh, no, but, would not. <laughs> and, you know, at least over the long haul and, and a variety of other stuff. But it does mean, and who wants to then think, oh shit, I've spent 20 years doing these meta-analyses and doing these studies and maybe none of them actually tell me what I think they tell me because I didn't control for some basic physics as well as I needed to control for. So the things I thought I was studying in that study, I wasn't studying as well as I hoped. In this case, shit, all these things that I put then into the meta-analysis, fuck, well, if you put garbage in, you get garbage out. Just because you compile a bunch of garbage doesn't mean you could come up with a better answer at the end of it if it's all still fundamentally flawed. And there is a horrifying possibility that much of the exercise research is fundamentally flawed. Mm. The, the, it's, it's a good point to make. It's also... you know, I've got to dip out for a few minutes, boys. So I will. These are still on. I'll be back. But if not, a good episode. <laughs> and now we slag Ross off. Yeah, do it over. Can't wait to listen. He's off to join the Taliban as well now. But it's it's one of those things. So where you you, you raise that point of you know meta analyses and putting in you know people like some of the studies included might not be great. In, you know, or they might be comparing completely different things, but they're because they use they have the term failure in their study title. They're all compared what? together, and it's like oh, actually that's a bit of a red flag. Um, but it's also down like whoever's doing that meta analysis to in. This, you know, you're you're always so um, kind of at the mercy of their interpretation, um, yep. and and if they're not picking up on these things, or if they've got a particular bias and all these sorts of things, they you know, you know, I mean, read the Carpinelli paper, and there's a few, quite a few instances where he's like, oh, there was this meta analysis, and this was a conclusion, but clearly the people doing the meta analysis didn't read the papers properly and actually concluded the wrong things, or actually made misleading statements to to basically support their own bias, like confirm their own bias. And it was like, you know, if you're going to read meta-analyses, quite often that's like a, a um, you know, it, it, it's it's an approach some people take, but like, oh, right, someone's just compiled all this research, I'll just read through their meta-analysis, and that's me technically reading 20 papers and when I'm reading one. You know, if you're going to do it properly, you're going to need to go and read the 20 papers as well and make sure that, you kind of pick up the same stuff but also 
quite often there's a lot of papers, you know, things in those papers. So like some of the stuff in this, you know, Carpinelli paper, which I think is really good. Um, there's a few things he says in there. I'm like, oh, I think he's nitpicking a bit much. But then there's things where he like pulled apart a study and said, oh, well, they didn't look at this and look at this. And then I was like, oh, but that sounds interesting. And I pulled it up and outside of just the hypertrophy lens, they they found some really cool other stuff that you're like, actually, that's still pretty interesting study. You know, it's like it might be written off in one aspect, but it's, it's quite often worth scanning through some of these things um i think it, I mean, carpinelli says it in in this paper that what what's the one thing we can definitely take from all this research well that pretty much everything can lead to muscle growth <laughs> is yeah. that a whole variety of approaches definitely cause growth yeah. like is that what he did he say that in the conclusion or is that what that was am what? i making that up that was what I said in my conclusion. So his conclusion was none of, there's no best way because the, it's basically about for you know for experienced lifters. You basically okay, there isn't, yeah, there isn't a jump out best method for experienced lifters. It doesn't really matter too much. But yeah, like when I went through it on the portal the other day, I was like, but he basically also confirmed that they all work. Like, you know, there's nothing in there that didn't work. It was like he looked at drop sets and rest um you know, like modulating rest periods and, and uh, pre-exhaust sets and all these sorts of things. And like, it's a big paper, like I say, and, and nothing jumps out and goes, well, the participants lost muscle doing this. It's just, yeah, yeah. You know, they all gain pretty equally. Like it's yeah. just, there's just tons of ways it works. Um, yeah. Which, which is awesome. Right. Cause I mean, yeah. look, volume phases can work really well. Intensity yeah. techniques can work really well. Different yeah. splits can work really well um and what we can what we can probably say i suspect is that there is no mind-blowingly best approach there because look if you find uh, if you go and study something and there's a big effect it shows up in every single time you do that test or that examination You're like fuck me there's a 30 percent difference between these guys and on this one there's a 25 percent and this one there's a 36 percent this one there's a 37 this one there's a 29 okay they're aggregating around this 30 there's a big effect here quite clearly no none of them fucking show anything even close to that so if there is a difference and there might be because we can't say definitively that there isn't but clearly the difference isn't huge we can start to conclude that when you've got equivocal research meaning stuff that isn't unequivocal it isn't all in one direction going this look at this big shiny effect we found when it's equivocal what what that does tell us is if there is an effect it's not a big one and i think that's kind of one of the things we can start to take away from this we, we can nitpick at failure and we, we should and we should try and get closer to those things but one thing we can definitely take away from all this stuff is that whatever the reason for failure uh as we approach even somewhere near it, for whatever reason, all seems to lead to some growth. As long as we're progressing and adding weight to our lifts and it's targeted at the muscle that you're actually interested in and it's not giving you pain or fucking your joints up, if you do it over time and keep getting stronger at it, you'll probably grow some tissue. Yeah. The, um, and that, that's what I'd say. That's the, the, you know, we, we spent, what, an hour and a half the other week dissecting the takeaways from this paper and... We didn't necessarily discuss it just around failure. It was just like, what can we, how can we apply all those things as coaches? It just comes down to what's appropriate. You know, how are you, how are you using it with the client? Is it relevant for them, their goals, all these sorts of things. And 
their skill level you know it's like okay we know drop sets are potentially no more effective but they're quite useful for time sometimes someone might be tiny yeah. cool like someone might be low skilled though so you're not going to trash them on a drop set so you know it's like you might have to find alternative routes there um, or another person's watched a shitload of jp videos and they yeah. feel psyched so they're gonna, they're not going to want reps in reserve another person has been following steve hall and mike israel and they're going to be like rir let's put in some mev and mrv and acronyms yeah. uh, and they don't talk in plates per side but these other guys love plates per side chat those things matter as well to to what's going to go on here it's getting closer which is really sad to think but you know when people are like oh which diet's the best you're like nothing as long as you're in a calorie deficit yeah. it comes down to what do you enjoy and you're like well which training method is the best like well evidently it doesn't really seem there is a best one but it does come down to what's appropriate and what do you enjoy but like the yeah. underlying thing is i mean you say what's the thing that has the biggest magnitude of effects it's like applying tension to, to tissues and yeah. taking them to at least some level of exhaustion under that <laughs> under those conditions You're like, well, that's what we need to do and then there's all these ways we can do it potentially that some are more enjoyable than others to certain people and we got to play on that and then it's also a case of over time you're like oh well this might not seem to be working as well so let's try this this slightly different approach and see what we what progress we can get out there but the um but i say on the failure front i'd say i encourage people it's something we've spoken about quite a lot recently in our education events and you know like that example on a practical camp you know as i say if anyone wants to witness that sort of thing but also play around with how we can cue people and take you know set different you know define different endpoints and according to an individual and what they want to get from a set like you know we've got a practical camp in october um and then that'd be a cool place to to come along and see that um or suffer yourself should you so wish yeah, or yourself. <laughs> um but yeah um, i'll put the link for that in the bio if anyone's interested but the um but, but it, i would encourage you guys to think a little more you know broadly about you know when you're defining we won't even call it fading out we'll just say the set endpoint. you know what what does it look like is it a case of you said you know i've I, quite a few there's programs i've written recently where i'll say like okay the end the set when you can no longer make it 50 percent of the way through the concentric it might be you know end the set when that thing around your hip that you quite often complained about when you start feeling that end the set when you lose position around this joint end the set when um uh you know there's, there's um, you know, it could be like you, you give a specific tempo of like, okay, we're going to go four seconds up. We're going to pause it at the top for a second. We're going to go four seconds down and we're going to pause at the bottom. And that's going to feel probably quite easy. And within, you know, you're going to be working within yourself at the first, you know, two thirds of the set. And then I want you to make sure that the last rep, that four seconds up, pause, four seconds down is as fast as you can move specifically on the lifting phase. I don't want you to be able to move any faster than four seconds, even if you were trying to like gun it. You're like, okay, once once that's pretty much the case and you feel like, you know, you go any further and it will become eight, you know, six seconds, eight seconds, end the set, you know. Um, and it, one, well, for, for certain people is, you know, do we even need to have a conversation about failure for some of your clients? You know, if they're, if they're starting out, first journeys into the gym and they're just trying getting in when does their set end well when they get to 10 reps or whatever you wrote down as their kind of thing unless their form breaks down so terribly like jesus christ this isn't the same move anymore in which case then you need to have asked yourself a question was this an appropriate move to have given them at that point but to begin with it's like look i just want to see can they keep reproducing these shapes under some form of load and get to a predetermined kind of end point. And again, we get them back, I suppose, then back to the, the idea of what's the set end point. Well, the set end point sometimes is when we did 10 repetitions that look really good. 
yeah oh. that's the thing right so the, it all comes that like the skill level side of things is massive um and then you know that that thing of things slowing down like if we can see some sort of involuntary slowing in the rep speed so like you know they're still trying to move fast but it's like it's just getting slower you're like maybe maybe that's a good thing but with those people we might just want to see that once so as soon as that rep that last rep starts slowing down significantly you're like okay that's it I suppose one of the things we've also been, we've been, because obviously we have like a hypertrophy bias here, but there's no reason that this has to be limited to that realm. Like if we're talking about athletes and we're talking about force velocity and they're training down the velocity end of the force velocity relationship and spectrum. Well, which means velocity. so if we're looking at force velocity, so Matt, if you guys aren't familiar with this, this is, is, often, <laughs> is often easier to see with a picture. Yeah. Um, so if you Google force velocity curve, force velocity relationship, you'll see, a graph and on one axis up the top there it's going to have force and let's say along the horizontal uh, it's going to have velocity you can only produce maximum force at very low speeds and you can only produce maximum velocities we're going to call them speeds at this point under low levels of force the analogy i tend to use in my head for this one is so you hopefully most of you guys will have heard of different twitches or uh, fast twitch slow twitch muscle fibers that kind of thing and what that's really referring to is how quickly the cross bridges so there's these things called actin and myosin filaments within these other things called sarcomeres within these other things called myofibrils that make up your muscle tissue but these actin and myosins they've got so let's imagine that these little hands that can grab hold of each other and this big fat myosin filament grabs hold of this thinner actin thing slides it along and what these hands need to be able to do is latch onto the actin filament above. This is way easier to see than describe. And even if you yeah. can just see the video. So if you do it, like there, there's a um, plug ourselves again, like on the yeah. education portal in the hypertrophy section, there's a, there's a bit yeah. of a spiel that I've done on this, but um, carry, on, carry on. Cool. Yeah. So go watch that would be one of the things, but and we don't need to necessarily go through. Uh, this would also come under, um, the length tension relationship of a sarcoma if we wanted to go down this route a little bit, but we're looking at force velocity. So I'm just going to keep to this idea. You'll, see, you'll, in mind. See, you'll see a graph, something like that. Yeah. There you go. So Luke's drawing. <laughs> For the people on YouTube. These, these actinomycin guys need to latch onto each other in order to produce force. It's their coupling together where they can then pull against each other that produces force at the microscopic level. And then shitloads of them do that at the same time. And that produces enough force to start moving my limb or fight some external resistance or whatever is going on. Well, the speed at which those cross bridges can form varies. And that's actually where we get fast twitch and slow twitch fibers from. And I forget the precise numbers, but it's something like 50 microseconds or milliseconds for the fast twitch guys to reach their peak force production and about 110 for the slow twitch guys. So it's something in that range uh, of, of relationships. So the, the slow twitch guys, guys aren't that slow. No, they got oh, God, no. Yeah, yeah. You wouldn't be able to see them do this. <laughs> the fast twitch guys are over twice as fast. That's kind of the main takeaway here. And so if you imagine we're all going to try and push a, a car in the street and there's like, I don't know, there's a hundred of us. We can all run at different speeds. And if that load that we're trying to push is really heavy, that it actually requires all of us to start shoving it to get it moving, then we all get to put our hands on the car and we all produce force and we all move the car down the road or the lorry down the road in this instance. If, however, that car's really light, it's a small kid's buggy, then there's a chance that Usain Bolt and two of his mates put their hands on the car or the buggy and start sprinting down the road with it so fast that the rest of us are just left looking at it, being like, 
Well, I can't produce any force because you fuckers have run away. Mm. And so when we produce max velocity, we're limited by the coupling and uncoupling speeds of mm. the fast switch guys, which are too oh. fast for it's the... Lovely analogy. It's a lovely analogy. Have <laughs> um, you not heard me use that one before? I think, no, I heard you use it once. It was, it's nice. It's a good one. Yeah. So I, I, how did we get onto that? Oh, the velocity thing. So yeah. if we're looking at failure then, and we're looking at training the velocity end of, of the spectrum, we might want to use some uh, electrical devices that monitor rep speed and look at, okay, cool. When we lose 5%, 10% of that really rapid contraction speed, depending on the particular activity being done, that's when we terminate it. Because actually beyond that, do you know what? We're not training that velocity relationship anymore. It's starting to slow down. And that isn't going to give us the effect and the training adaptation that we want for the athlete in that thing. It's just that, look, most of the people listening to this are probably way more interested in hypertrophy, which is fair enough. No, 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 no but it's, it's a good point. But like I say, if you don't um, have that, you know, electrical things, you know, you potentially eyeball it to some degree. But, you know, that will yeah. be one I'd say if you're going to get into that realm, get into studying some of that stuff like in the, in the context of training athletes and, and that sort of training is probably the best place because they'll probably have techniques you could use to be like, oh, I can have all that. And it would basically be keeping a good eye on speed. <laughs> and you're usually looking for that kind of stuff. People end up very rarely doing more than say five reps, usually yeah. like three to five reps or something stupidly explosive. You yeah. won't even notice that it's really slowed down unless you've got, because these are the things when stuff goes really rapidly, it's too fast for us to really know. Maybe, I don't know, I suppose maybe if you're really familiar with it, you do a crap load of them, maybe you get better at noticing it. But yeah. for myself, I'd be like, it's also different, as you say, it's different as well for the um, people that would uh, would do, you know, if you some people might hear three to five reps and be like, oh, I'm doing you know, heavy stuff like powerlifts. It's like, no, it would be lighter than what they'd use because they want to be oh, able God, to yeah. Yeah, You wouldn't be close to your max effort in the sense of you'd be wanting, you know, if you were doing a bench press, it would be like, you want to use enough load that you could move that thing explosively. So it would actually be able to go, you know, stuff like that. Um so yeah, it's an interesting topic though, but it's a good point to raise. And, and again, in the context of failure, that's another thing to think. You're like, okay, failure there or the set endpoint is when you lose five, ten percent of the speed or whatever you know is necessary or defined in that instance. Um, but it, and and that's, I mean, the main takeaway from this whole conversation, hopefully, is um, research in this area sucks. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> no, um, that you know we, regardless of what the research says, we can create these clear definitions within our own coaching practice and our own training and and and, and define set endpoints according to what we feel is appropriate for ourselves and our clients and their goals and, and these things and, and play around with it you know it will it will, it will make probably and I, well, I say probably it does definitely for me it makes you know things like programming a lot more enjoyable when you when you get to play around with this stuff because there's the element of you know you want it obviously to be specific to the goal and, and things like that but then you know it can be quite enjoyable for clients a lot of the time when they're like oh no i'm not just getting a eight to twelve reps go to failure they're like oh i've got a think something i'm aiming for that's a bit more tangible and kind of interesting um and then, you usually find even within that that let's say you run someone and they're doing what we might call death work <laughs> we're taking everything to just jesus christ shaking like a shitting dog yeah. uh and what we kind of actually enjoy doing a lot of the time ourselves too but there's only so long you can run that before it is itself very fatiguing, very draining and very like, oh, fuck me, I'm a bit nervous about going into it. I don't know if I've got enough, I've got it in me today to push that hard. Those things are really draining. So checking in with your clients and because, you know, you can run phases that way and then start tweaking them and run a different phase or run, you know, okay, we did eight weeks of really hard stuff. Let's take two weeks 
if they really enjoy that approach, but let's just chill them out, take a week or two, or we don't take anything to failure. We just get stuff in and then push into the next phase because they really like that. Or maybe they now they're a bit done with that kind of approach and they want a bit more volume work or a different, but you've, that's one of the beautiful things with this is we're not limited to the six week study. You know, we've got clients for hopefully a relatively long period of time. We can play with different things with them and see what they respond to and ask them as well. Cause did they like it? How did they feel? Was do you know what? It's, 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 I like that approach, but it's, it's too time consuming right now. And I've got all these other things in my life. Okay, cool. Then let's use this other approach for that. Now we've got to be practical with yeah. our stuff as well as coaches. So it's the, it's the thing of, um, like if you put, you know, you ask these researchers when they take a pool of, um, you know, um, participants are like, we're going to, we're going to resistance train them for eight weeks. And then we, you know, none of them are, yeah, they'll always be like, we reckon we might see this, but none of them are like, we're definitely going to see all of them grow. Um, and by this much, um, like you just don't see that. And it's, you know, and then you never see them go. And we know that by doing drop sets, it's going to be the perfect intervention for this group. Um, they're, they're just like, we're going to see what happens. And that's basically how we need to approach it with, with our training. We're like we have all this data of like, this stuff tends to work under the right circumstances and that includes getting the nutrition right and getting everything right outside of training as well but all we are doing and and that's why if you're a coach out there who's guaranteeing people results i would be very you know i would question that because you can't guarantee them a because you can't control their work ethic and what they're doing day to day but also you don't know that what you're going to do is is you know is going to get them where they want to be especially in that 12 weeks um but it's um it's a uh you know what, what is the thing having that kind of freedom of being like and and they're not going into work with clients but like, i don't really know what's going to happen here. you still want to be confident in what <laughs> but, it, but you know being honest and being like oh, you know you know i've got a, an idea of you know they're basically coming to you for you to help them solve a problem You're like i've got an idea i've got a hypothesis we're going to run this experiment and hopefully that you know that hypothesis is based you know on some information that you've gathered and it's actually fairly strong um, but is uh you know that you think okay I, i've got an idea of what i think is going to work here i know what their setup is and how their life is I, I think i've constructed some sort of program here that's going to help them get they want to be and then you're going to run the experiment monitor the data and see what feedback you get and then the next thing you're going to maybe tweak a few things that you maybe could tweak and based on like the results and go again um, and it makes for quite a fun way it's like but as an example um kind of example but just on also something you just said then like i've just started working with a guy who's actually working in um same gym as one of your clients pioneer performance oh yeah 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 jack, so, yeah. jack and, and matthew's with um yeah jimbo isn't he oh yeah so i've got daniel dan yeah. and um but like um so, but one of the things I've done, so I've, I've basically mapped out like phase one and it was like, you know, this is phase one. It's you know, we're not going to be pushing it ridiculously, but I was like, but we have got this awesome gym with all this cool kit. That's, we know the profiles where it's fairly well. And he's also got access to all these people that understand mechanics. So I said phase two, which we're, we're building towards is going to be pretty brutal. We're going to call on some of these guys to help use things like manual assistance and resistance and take sets a lot further. And, but in this first phase, I was like, the, like clearly defined endpoints of sets. And it's like, we're just ending sets when he, he can't make it 50% to the rep or it slows down a certain point. So we're kind of like, because like what Paul mentioned, like when you start, you know, taking the arbitrary definition of failure is until I can't do any more. You do that every exercise, every set, you're going to be fucked. And that's why that approach tends to demand lower volume and these sorts of things. So having 
the freedom to you know change this change how you approach that you'll be able to potentially you know cater to those clients that might enjoy doing a bit more volume it might be necessary them to do a bit more volume but also you kind of understand what you're doing to the people who are using less volume and going to fail you're like okay that, I, I get that's quite taxing <laughs> the fun part of that is i've done actually a very similar thing with jack who's at the same place where that first six week phase has been like i want to see him own shapes control these things control tempers and stuff and now we've just started adding in all right let's start manipulating the profile on this leg press let's introduce banding i need to know the angle and, it, and get those kind of things played around with yeah. uh, roping is made in to help <laughs> with a couple of bits and pieces and it's the same stuff i think often people hear what we talk about and obviously get excited by profiles and cool shit that we 100 got excited about ourselves and still kind of get excited about awesome. yeah. yeah exactly but it it's not the first point of uh of starting with a client and, and as luke said there the other consideration with these approaches is like what else is going on in my client's life <laughs> like okay as i'm pushing towards the end of a photo shoot prep for example i need to understand my client's going to be you know running low uh, and asking them to die, die on everything might be more than they've got, might be burning them out a bit too much. Might also be increased risk of injury, depending on the exercise that I've got in question. I might be able to ask someone to go to dying on bicep curls more than I can ask them to go to dying on a hack squat uh, or, or something else. Or a vertical leg press. Um, yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just wash them in half. Uh, so there's there's plenty of practical considerations outside of the realm of just the training thing it's as you get more skilled at this managing to look out at the big picture whilst looking at the details at the same time sort of looking at them simultaneously it, it's difficult to do that but you do get better at doing it as you as you go through and that means always having a conversation with your client as well because you're going to make assumptions otherwise about where they're at absolutely and then um, yeah i mean the information gathering is mm. is key um but yeah, and then that's hopefully what we we're doing. But it's just some people might now be thinking, oh, there's more information I can gather in this area that previously I didn't think I could. Um, you know, it's just like, and, it, and it, it, you know, it's, it's some people might find it fairly hard because, you know, you might have an approach to training that you really enjoy and that you've been doing and you've been using with a lot of clients and maybe that's what you're known for and stuff like that. And you can, it doesn't mean don't use it, but it means, you know, you'll have the ability to pe work with people that that might not be appropriate for. Like those beginners that, you know, you might still get people that come to you, but like, I like what you do, but I'm fairly new. And you're like, well, let's, let's do it. Let's, let's go to failure, you know, yeah. top set, back and set. Yeah. um yeah. you're like well actually no like maybe we'll build them towards that if they if they want to but we'll start them off with this other stuff and we won't push it as far and we'll take into account more of these other variables and i suppose it's funny on one level because people do this with different things like some people get emotionally attached to the exercises right the power lifts are the classic examples of that everyone must be squatting benching and deadlifting and now there's maybe a group of people who are almost emotionally connected to Everything has to be to death and to failure. I don't. I just don't see the point in a rapid reserve or, or this, that, and the other. It's like that's that's just as emotionally attached as the critique of the squat, bench, and dead that yeah. we've had kind of before. Like no one. I'm yet to see anyone really emotionally attached to rest periods for all their clients. All my clients take ninety seconds. That's what they need. Like I've yet to see that be a thing, but I've definitely seen more and more of a movement towards failure or the exercises, and it's. It's curious to me just to see that play out. I'm like, what will the next thing be? There'll be a slave to tempo. Will there be a slave to rest period? Will there be a slave to, to rep range? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> There's already a slave to slow eccentrics, isn't there? Yeah. Um, but, the, uh, but no, I mean, it, it, ironically, it's a, it's a failure. 
to appreciate the yeah, how nuanced strong, strong. <laughs> yeah <laughs> how, 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 how nuanced the term failure is and, and what that can encompass i think it's the um, i think when and and who it's appropriate for and i think you you, you know it's like the, and, and when you look at the research on it where you know some of the research where they've gone okay we've defined failure in this instance as a point where they cannot complete another rep um and then we're like and then we're pushing into this point you know maybe a few reps before and you know just the point where things slow down a bit and you're like actually the outcomes in those scenarios you know for those people in those studies and stuff doesn't suggest one's better than the other and it's but there are but it's the thing like with anything i think appreciating that there are still benefits there's a cool study i like to reference i referenced it in the ebook i wrote over lockdown which was um you know where they took like the dorian yates style of like hit training um and um and then the a higher volume approach of it was like three sets of eight to twelve per exercise and and did it for i have to refresh it was like eight to twelve weeks or something like that assessed hypertrophy and strength and 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 the um it, it was quite an interesting thing because like the results in terms of hypertrophy were the same but the dorian yates group actually got stronger doing less volume and they were doing drop sets and rest pause sets and these sorts of things, which was quite interesting to see in a study. Um, which was quite an interesting read, but they, it was the time they spent in the gym as well. That was the best thing. They were like, oh, well, the outcomes were similar. They actually did get a bit stronger in the low volume group, like significantly stronger as well. They were like, but the Dorian Yates group spent like a total, it was like an average of 16.7 minutes of training a session versus the other group, which was like 27 minutes. And, and, and then the other group, which did high volume, actually lost 15% of its study pool to injury and stuff. And I was like, so that thing of low volume, high intensity and injury, that study goes against that. But also the, the time thing's pretty interesting. So there'll be those people that like, oh, you know, I'm pressured for time. I don't need, you know, I'm, um, you know, I need short period time periods in the gym and because of stuff outside of training, all these sorts of things, you're like, well, that approach could work provided they can, it's appropriate for them to go to failure and all these sorts of things. And if that's the, the case, then failure probably is better for that person, but not from a hypertrophy perspective. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the same thing that at the old show and study of three sets of 10 versus seven sets of three and like both groups grow the same amount of time. Yeah. But the three sets of 10 group were there for like 28 minutes or something. And the seven sets of three were there for like an hour and 20 minutes. Yeah, yeah. Like really bored by the end of this thing. So that's the huge bit. It's like, but your clients have practical needs. They yeah. have lives. They don't want to be in the gym the entire time, a lot of the time. Yeah. Um, and they have other hobbies. They might have kids and jobs and all those other things that, you know, turns out matters to most people. Yeah. Uh, see, which is why, to be fair, I think you get, you know, this, I know some people, I want to say, I saw some guy inquire. It might have just been someone I spoke to, but they said, oh, I really want to get coaching with James because, you know, James has had a kid and I've just had a kid and he'll kind of understand what that's what that's like and I was like that's one of the things that some of these people look for and there might be clients that have you know kids or something like that that you've as a coach you've, you're not in that position yet and you fail to appreciate like oh shit like that's a big, yeah. big thing that I you need to prioritize your sleep but you've got a six month old yeah. like okay if you keep telling your client that they're going to slap you at some point yeah. one of the things I've, I've like I redid our consultation forms the there as a question I added in was just like do you have a family you know and then if so you know do you have kids you know how many kids do you have and how, you know and it was like because if someone's like yes i have a family and i've got two very young kids you're like sleep's going to be an interesting one and i'm not going to get on their back too much about it yeah. <laughs> you know, it's like, but there'll be some people like oh but dude you know the research says you know and i used to be that guy that was just like oh mate we need we need sleep 
you know, to be ideal. And they're like, mate, like, <laughs> I can't. <laughs> okay, exactly. I'm, like, I'm unwilling to give up my child for this. So, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, but it, yeah, and that's that's one of those things. But it, yeah, it, it's just, I mean, it's the thing appreciating all these other areas. Um, very cool. Yeah. So, yeah. what you should do if you've got a client with a child is steal someone else's child so you can sympathize and empathize with yeah. where they're coming from. And then then they won't just be asking to work with Jimbo because they'll think this guy has a child too. And it doesn't matter that you stole one, it's going to be fine. Your business is going to be in a good place. Well, just, yeah, just go to attract those sorts of clients as well. Just go to like public places and take pictures with kids. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe buy an ice cream van. Go hang out near the park. <laughs> we started off talking about Taliban, and now we're <laughs> just pushing, really pushed the boat out of here. Um, that was all a joke. That was all a joke for the record. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, God. Um, right, I mean, that's pretty, much, that's pretty much covered, right? I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if anyone, like I say, if anyone um, has any questions on that, comment on youtube drop us a message whatever it is but hopefully that was quite a useful conversation that will give you a little bit more of an appreciation for how we can define failure um and or, or set endpoints hopefully um and um and like i say if, if anyone is on the portal hasn't checked it out the live from what was the date today it was um so what? tuesday the 8th was it wait tuesday the 18th is that when it was yeah no, yeah, it would have been the 17th, sorry. Um, so we did a live on the 17th of August, 2021. So I don't know if people are listening to this in the year 2072. Um, 2021, 17th of August. Um, the uh, There was a live where we dissected that paper a bit, looked at some of the other factors. But also, like I said, we, we'll be doing the, um, we've got our practical camp in October, and that will be an opportunity to explore some of this stuff in a more practical sense. Obviously, that one's more exercise mechanics, but there'll be instances where we talk about, you know, Putting, taking someone's failure and you can actually see it or potentially participate in it yourself um yeah. it's quite fun so um yeah anyway thank you for listening people thank you paul and thank you ross when he if he, he's probably going to rock up as soon as we stop recording um and we will see you on the next one thank you for listening to the muscle mentors podcast just a quick shout out to our sponsors who support the channel and everything we do in the realms of education and coaching within the industry. Firstly, our original sponsor, Supplement Needs. They've been with us from the start. If you're seeking the highest quality supplements on the market, particularly organ support and health orientated products, you can use code MUSCLEMENTORS at checkout for 10% off your order. Precision Prep, our recently introduced food preparation partner, delivering the finest quality meal prep across the UK, featuring their new pro prep range, a concept closely developed with us to solve an issue we see day to day with time limitations and nutritional compromise. If you're seeking the highest quality nutrition delivered to your door for the best price, look no further. Use code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for 15% off your first order and 10% thereafter. And lastly, RAR Optics, the highest grade blue light, blue light blocking glasses on the market with the slickest style. In a world filled with artificial light, particularly those with high screen time, I can certainly say I'm one of them. These can be a real game changer for sleep quality and recovery, something we use personally on a day-to-day -day basis. Grab yourself a pair by using code MUSCLEMENTALS at checkout for money off all orders. Once again, thank you for your continued support. Until next time.